try it again. There we go. All right, so good morning, everyone. I'm going to say a prayer to get us started. Heavenly Father, have your way with us today. Um, take my um, research and make it glorious for your purposes and for the um, growth and edification of the ladies in the room, Lord. We are your servants, and we ask you to help us to be appropriately obedient. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it is a high temptation to balk the system. So today I have, I'm, I'm balking the system in that I'm teaching on last week's lesson. So we are going to start with last week, which we didn't have time to discuss because there was that, you know, little problem with the weather that we're not complaining about. And so um, we're going to go back a week and just establish some groundwork, which um, works on two levels. The first one is I already wrote the lesson and I want to give it. <laughs> And the second is that actually establishing the groundwork for this week helps us to understand a little bit more about some of the more challenging things we read in, in, for this week's discussion. And I hope to get through as much as possible. But if not, these are the fill-in-the-blanks on your paper right now. Write them down so that we don't feel in any way stressed or strained. This is how I've divided out the book of Numbers chapters 15 through 20 which was our lesson for last week on book of Numbers 15, rules and regulations. My NIV version said additional regulations. My older NIV said supplementary regulations as a, as a header. Numbers 16, 1 through 35, talks about the rebellion. Numbers 16 through chapter 17, the restoration of the rightful, and that is the rightful priesthood. Numbers 18 talks about the rights and responsibilities of the priest. Numbers 19 talks about that strange red heifer thing um, and being rinsed in red water. Numbers 21 through 13 talks about the rock of Meribah and the rebuke that comes. Numbers 20, 14 through 21 is a rerouting around Edom. And Numbers 20, 22 through 29 is an RIP, rest in peace, Aaron. Tucked in there is a small rest in peace uh, for his sister, hardly mentioned. But So um, I do want to go through this um, together, but I, I thought, I was thinking so much about all these rules and regulations, additional rules, additional regulations, and as I started to think about that, I thought, what are the kinds of rules and regulations that keep us, you know, tightly bound together, help things run? We understand that we need rules, right? I mean, I understand if I go down South Street here, at more than 30 miles an hour, I'm going to get a ticket. And the reason I remember that is because I got a ticket. <laughs> so there are rules and there are consequences, and they matter because they keep us in order. So um, I don't like it that much, but um, I was at the gym. And what I mean by I don't like it that much, I mean I don't like the gym that much. <laughs> this is true. I do not like the gym. I go there out of obedience once in a while. So I'm at the gym, and I see rules everywhere, posted everywhere. In fact, there are two tablets about two by three or two by four right next to each other at the gym. And, you know, I wanted them to be 10 rules, but there's 11, so it kind of blows me. But does it remind you of anything to have 10 posted commandments or 11 posted commandments for the gym? And then there are some breakdowns. Number five, you know, look at all the breakdowns and exercise general courtesy while working out. Why do we need so much clarification on exercise general courtesy? Because your courtesy and my courtesy may be different courtesies. My courtesy might be saving the machine for my friend because she's my friend and surely you want her there. Or my courtesy might be to let my non-member friend into the locker room where she is prohibited by other rules. 
these are more rules around the room. Uh, an emergency escape plan, always good to have. How to help prevent illness, how to use your cell phone. There were probably 20 more signs. Today, when I walk down the stairs to where we're going to have some of our small groups, there are signs posted everywhere as how we should behave, what the door should be, who can go into this restroom with whom and how. They're everywhere. They're informative, restrictive, and help us to stay in good order. We understand that, basically. So I've told you before that I was a, a teacher. And um, for a stint, for about six years, I was an elementary art teacher. And I was very excited about that. But I only worked on one day of the week. And I had all six levels back-to-back -back every 30 minutes for that entire day, which meant I had to be really, really, really organized because there wasn't time to wash the paintbrushes before the kindergartners came in after the sixth graders were in and so forth. But that wasn't my thought at the beginning. My thought at the beginning was something like, I went to college in the you know, post-hippie era, and it was like, oh, we're going to create, and these children are going to imagine, and I'm going to teach them to see depth and color and appreciate and all that garbage. And I said, so I said, to the class, oh, I'm so happy to be your teacher. This is so great. We're going to appreciate. And they heard, wah, 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 And what I did say also was, and we're not going to worry about anything. We're not going to worry about broken crayons or anything. We're just going to create. And they all said, wah, 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 wah. Did she say to break the crayons? I think she did. <laughs> click, 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 click. And by the end of that first day, I kid you not, every crayon was snapped in half. Now, what does that tell you about us? <laughs> rules without consequences are not rules at all. So, and rules that seem to allow for too much gray are also not the kind of rules that keep us healthy, well, obedient, and, and thriving. So what I did after that was, you know, maybe went home and cried a bit and then said, oh yeah, I forgot when you're a teacher, you have to establish rules and consequences before you do any other thing. And so I brainstormed with each class. They thought they were making them up. Three great rules that would keep us bound. I coaxed them. They didn't know it. And I said, and what should we do if you break those rules? Oh, they had all kinds of ideas. And I said, how would we maybe like make those rules known to us? Like, what could we do? And they're like, oh, you know, we could draw pictures. We could illustrate. We could color. We did that for three solid weeks. Each class built the rules, decorated the rules, decided how to post the rules, recited the rules, and sung the rules. And we never had to do it again. Not in any year thereafter. I just had to refer to them because they were clear. And intuitively, we know that rules are good for us. We just sometimes don't like it. So this book, starting in uh, Numbers, is all about what's going to happen in the future. Um, it says in Numbers 15, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land, you are to inhabit. So we know we've got a ways to go yet. We're not there yet. But he's already establishing some additional rules for the people who've already had the Ten Commandments. Now when you get into this other place, this is what you're going to have to do. So it wouldn't be that surprising that when someone broke the rule, they wouldn't know exactly how to respond to it. Because is this about the future, or is this about now? And the answer is apparently both. So we know that um, in chapters, in Numbers chapter 15, there are all kinds of um, clarifications as what to do when one sins unintentionally and when one um, wants to bring their offering. 
And in each case, you're hearing a listing and a process about which bull or ram to kill, male animals, how to do so, what, what each one is a recompense for, with lots of clarity on that. So ignorance of the law is no excuse. It's all written down there. But there's something, um, and, and you to make a pleasing aroma of these sacrifices and of these gifts to God. It's, everything makes a pleasing aroma. It says that five times in this set of chapters. So we know that the burning of the animals is to take away our stench and replace it with something that's a pleasing aroma, the smell of cooking meat, which I do find a pleasing aroma. But later on, somebody breaks the rule, if you'll recall. He's collecting sticks on the Sabbath. Now, there are three divisions here, what to do for gifts, and sa- for gifts, what to do for recompense or payment for your sins that you know you committed and you did it accidentally, what to do when you did commit a sin and you, and you, and you come clean with it, and then what happens when you've committed a sin with a high hand, a high-handed sin, a high-handed sin says, I have the right, I have the right to do this. And the, and the punishment for a high-handed sin is very rigorous. So if I'm in my classroom of art students and somebody breaks a crayon accidentally, that's fine. And if somebody tips something over on a person's page because he doesn't like what he's doing or thinks it's better than his, we have a way to make a recompense for that. But if you are belligerent and rejecting all authority in the classroom, you're going out in the hall or worse. And this is what Moses is establishing with the people. If you come at me without regard to my authority, you're going out, or worse. And it seems very stringent, but on my three days of 100% rule establishment with my classroom, I was able to avoid any of the worst things that happened because I was very clear on the front end, eventually. So in Exodus 35, 1 through 3, we see the giving of the Ten Commandments. And we see what happens when anyone breaks the Sabbath uh, regulation. Let me see if I have it written here. Um, Okay, let me see. While the people of Israel were... Oh, no, I'm sorry, I don't have it written here. Unfortunately. Here it is. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them... This is an exodus now. They've just left the desert. This is not numbers. This is before... These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days' work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath will be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in your dwelling, in your dwelling place on the Sabbath. The man here was very specifically breaking that rule. He was collecting kindling in order to have a fire on the Sabbath. He you're to be put to death. The rules were there, but now we're in a new place. In fact, we're in the transitional place. We're in the adolescence of a, of a country. They've moved from being you know, dominated to feeling their oats and trying to figure out who we're gonna be and who gets to be boss, which is the rest of this chapter. And this one very specific thing, thing that is done is causing some distress, and, and they, they take this man who's been caught collecting kindling one on the, on the Sabbath, and they put him over here because they're like, well, we don't know what to do. Now, if I had the job of deciding that someone had to be put to death for a violation, I might say, eh, I don't, it's not my job to do that. I don't know whose job to do that. So Moses has to establish whose job it is and who will cut him off. But his clarity here is the person who does anything with a high hand, I want you to remember that line, with a high hand. Everybody say with a high hand. With a high hand. That person shall be, 
excuse me, utterly cut off. And I would say stoning outside the camp is utterly cut off. And it seems strange and hard to read. So after this, we get uh, maybe a rebellion that comes from some of this. I don't know who has the authority to say what to whom and why. For example, why does um, Moses and Aaron, why do they get to be the, the high hand, the high priests? Why do they get to decide who we are? And we're going to look a little bit at the family tree again. We had this last week um, right here. Here's the family tree. These are the rebellion that you saw, the rebellion of Korah and others. So in the family tree, Levi and Reuben are brothers. But the firstborn brother is Reuben. He is Jacob's first son. Levi's down the line. But as you know, the Levites, because you pre pretended to be Levites a few weeks ago, the Levites are the, you know, the, the high caste, the highest group in, the, in, the, in all of the Israelites. And even in all of those that are the Levites, there's, a, there's even a, a smaller ex, um, exceptional group, and they fall under the family of Aaron. So we've got Levi and Reuben being brothers, a generation down. You see Kohath, you remember the Kohath? That was Kelly's group over there that did the high priest group. You Kohaths were on the one side of the temple, uh, on, the, on the tent of meeting. And then one generation down, Amran. And then our text tells us um, the sons of Itzar are the ones who revolted. I'm going to read it to you. Well, I'll have it on here too. Now Korah, the son of Itzar, do you see him? Oops. I'm going to put it back so you can see the, you can see it. Now Korah, the son of Itzar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, so there's the family tree, and Dathan and Ibram, sons of Eliab, and they're over here under Reuben's side, took men, and they rose up before Moses with a number of people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, who chosen from the assembly, well-known men, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Have we ever seen this kind of rebellion over, let's say, who's in charge, maybe, you know, politically? <laughs> <laughs> who gets to decide who gets to run us? This is, and these now are contemporaries. They are both three generations out from the original brothers. So these are contemporaries. In fact, a couple of them are cousins. And Kohath is saying, hey, why do you get to be the high chief and I don't? I mean, I'm in the same family. I'm as holy as you are. What makes you holier than me? And Reuben's group says, oh, speaking of priority, we are descended from the first son of Israel, which should have more clout than you altogether. And so there is this grumbling and complaining. And what I really like about reading this chapter and seeing this is not only you know, being reflected in society and in myself, but seeing how Moses responded. And five times in this section, and one more time we're going to see Balaam responding this way. You'll see this in this week's chapter. His response to the, the animosity and the challenge over leadership is not to get a high hand and say, I got this, it's to get low. He got low. He fell on his face six times, and they always come after his authority is being challenged. Now this, I would say, has to be a holy and supernatural reaction to being challenged. Because I know when I'm challenged, I do not get more humble. 
If anything, I get less humble and more self-righteous. But Moses gives us an example here. This, this, this whole chapter is not really about how bad were those people. They are about how good would God want us to be. How good would it be if we lived together in unity and cooperation and obedience with what he has for us? Because he wants us to. And so Moses falls on his face. And God answers Moses at that time and says, you know, I'm just going to do away with all of them. They're going out of here. We've got we to gotta root out the evil. And Moses begs and says, oh, not that, so please don't. And he says, well, I'm taking, I'm taking the, the appropriate justice, because justice means the wrong things have been treated appropriately, as well as the right things being rewarded. So I'm going to take my justice out on those who, who were um, preliminary or primary and rallying and rousing up the people. And, and Moses says, let me help everybody else get away from them. And they don't necessarily. They don't necessarily get away from Kohath takes his spot. The other people takes his spot. One person you don't hear of again in, in the line of, um, I looked this up last night, in the line of the rebellion, we had On, son of Pereth, son of Palu, son of Reuben. He's never mentioned again in scripture. He was one of the rebels that we heard about in one of the verses, and he's not mentioned again in scripture. Now the Talmud, which are the writings, the commentaries on Old Testament scripture, say that On's wife convinced him not to go with the rebellion. Because he said, one way or the other, you're going to be following someone. You might as well live to tell. But this is not scripture. This is speculation or story or, or commentary. So we really don't know because he's never mentioned again. If you do a, a Bible Gateway search on the word O-N, you're going to get a lot of hits because it says on. <laughs> so, um, but he is not mentioned again. So that's interesting. He was able to escape the, the uh, death trap that was set by those he was following by, ex by exiting from it. So he is not listed here as those who have to pay the, the crime for this punishment. So once the um, clarity of an earthquake that swallows you up is done, people are getting the message that there are real consequences to rebellion, especially rebellion at the highest level. Yes, this is meant to control the people. Yes, it feels oppressive sometimes, especially if you don't get the point. But really, the Lord wants us to thrive. He wants to take us to the land of milk and honey, and we just want our own way. In the garden, we wanted our own way. We wanted to decide with a high hand if we could pick that fruit if we could eat that fruit. This is so much a part of our daily, which is why the book of Numbers is way more relevant than I ever thought it was. Personally, I had no excitement about studying the book of Numbers, but now I'm really excited because every day I find something else. So then we get to Numbers 16 and 17, the restoration of the rightful priesthood. So once again, um, there is an objection. Okay, we've got it all settled out that the Levites are going to be you know, the ruling group there. But now who gets to be the high priest is under um, attack. And each one of the tribes is going to bring a staff. And God says to Moses after he falls on his face again, you know what, tell them all to bring a staff. Be sure they put their name on it so there's no trickery here. Everybody's got their staff. And I will do something outside of your ability, Moses. I will, it's not about you. You just tell them. Put your staff up here. And the one who I've chosen for the high priesthood in his line will bud and bloom and blossom and produce fruit. Now, that's crazy. But there's no question who could make that happen. It isn't Moses, and it isn't the high priest Aaron, and it isn't any of his relatives. It's God alone. 
So glory goes to God for this supernatural thing which brings life from death. Oh, that sounds familiar. Glory goes to God for that. No question at all. And so Aaron's staff blooms, and from then on, they understand that the priesthood comes down from the line of Aaron, and it is restored. But not before there's trouble. Those censors of the people that, I forgot to mention this, when they were swallowed up in an earthquake when, or, or some kind of supernatural event swallowed up the, the rebellion, they, they all had censors of hot coals and incense, which only are rightfully used by the priest. In other words, they were putting on the garment or the affect of holy people in order to get power. Ooh, that seems familiar too. Mm. Okay, so they had these, these censers, which were set aside. And if you recall, nobody could touch these things in the real tabernacle except the high priest himself. So we're like, well, we're having our own because we're all part of the high priesthood. See, we can run ourselves. And they have these censers and they're swallowed up and there's a fire that takes out the other people standing around, those who haven't distanced themselves, but they take those censers out and they take that copper and they pound it around the holy... Um, Oh, let me remember now. Who remembers what they pounded around? I think it's one of the altars. To remind themselves that rebellion gets you burned up. So God is teaching us constantly through righteous acts to remind the people that no one except a descendant of Aaron should come to burn incense before the Lord. Sounds like a rough um, response, but God had a lot to do with this ragtag bunch of people who had used to be, who were who were poor slaves and rebelling slaves, and now had to become a decent and um, respectable and name-bearing people of God. So now the priesthood gets defined by its duties and responsibilities. So we know this from last time I taught. Anyway, keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar. Guard your priesthood and all that concerns the altar and all that is within the veil. And out of all the gifts, you shall present a contribution due to the Lord from each in the best part. Remember, all the sacrifices that are made are coming as food, as provision for the priesthood. But out of that, the best of the best is, is asked to be sacrificed again. It's like paying taxes twice. So the priests are held in a position of humility because they have to remember that they are not higher than the one that they purport to serve. So they are to serve that. Now, their rights are, every holy contribution that Israel presents to you will be yours as a perpetual due. I love this term. It is a covenant of salt forever. Salt never loses its flavor. It's a covenant preservative thing used for meats. It is a covenant of salt. This is a preserved, protected, flavorful, essential um, right and responsibility. And you shall have, here's the hard part, no inheritance in that land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion, says God, and I am your inheritance among the people of Israel. Now, if you're a priest in the, in the line of the priesthood, and you just found out you don't get any property, you don't get any real estate, you might not be able to grow or produce anything, but everything you get comes on the benevolence or the, the correct behavior of others. Well, you might be at, one, at once um, concerned that you might not be able to make it, and on the other hand, really um, stringent about making sure everybody else follows the rules. Because your livelihood depends on their obedience. So this is a pretty good system for the priests. And so, um, after all these deaths and plagues, which I know you saw them, and you saw them again today, 
There is still the problem of how do we keep this holy people uh, protected from the scourge of, of illness and death and even the marks of rebellion. And so, again, God speaks to Moses and he sets up this pattern. Okay, you've heard of the red heifer. Raise your hand if you've heard of the red heifer. Okay, it's been made into some kind of um, supernatural thing that could never happen, but these reddish cows are grown all the time, and they're in, in Israel, and we have reddish cows here, and that's what they're talking about. But they're not just talking about a red cow. First of all, I have to ask you, what's the difference between a cow and a steer? Say it again. Say it loudly, please. Female. Okay, you remember I just told you about the bulls and the rams? Males. We've got a unique female, and she's unique in two ways. She doesn't have any, you can see the, the um, uh, rabbi looking to make sure there's not one white or strangely colored hair in this red heifer. We've got this red cow who has been unhitched. We have a, a virgin, perfect cow. A woman who's never been hitched to a yoke, a girl who's never been, <laughs> female cow who's never been hitched, and she's, and she's perfect. She's going to be the vessel for what comes next. And the vessel for what comes next is life out of death. Seems familiar to me. So we've got with the cow, she has to be burned up entirely, but some of the blood is sprinkled and, and put on the east side of the tent, and she's burned up completely. This is a big sacrifice because a cow brings not only meat, but milk and, excuse me, milk and cheese and other things, meat and dairy. So this is a, a larger sacrifice than even the bull. So um, we have the cow being burnt up completely, a large sacrifice of a female who's never been hitched, some cedar wood, which is also a red wood, and it also smells good, some hyssop, which this is a picture of what we call hyssop up in the right-hand corner. Um, <clears throat> scholars think that the hyssop that they're referring to is probably a sage plant because it's very absorbent leaves, because what happens is that plant is going to be dipped into some um, mixture and um, sprinkled all around. And then we have a scarlet yarn. And you see I have a question mark up there between scarlet yarn. And the reason is <clears throat> the word scarlet yarn has a very close relationship with this certain kind of insect that attaches itself that those red things are not buds. That's an insect. And when you smash it, guess what color it is? It's red. So we're not sure about the translation, but we do know that that red is what's used to dye the red yarn. So whether there's red yarn itself or the makings of red yarn, this concoction is what color, ladies? It's red. And it's mixed with water. All the ashes are mixed with water. And if you go near a dead person, or even go near the process of mixing this for a dead person, you are unclean for a certain amount of time. And the clean comes from the ashes hitting you. The water and the blood make you clean. The water and the blood take you from death to life. The water and the blood take you from <clears throat> unclean to pure and spotless and able to approach this. Now, that seems like a good thing. And we have water and blood that bring us to a clean place. When Jesus said, you must be born again, and Nicodemus says, how can this be? How can I be born of a woman? He was talking about the birth process, which is water and blood. And so this is a, an image that brings us to where we are. Oh, he, Jesus says, 
Uh, John says twice, I, I, I was very curious about this this week. It hit me. Where have I seen water and blood together? And John, the, the writer of the book of John and, and the epistle of 1 John, two times uses that term, water and blood together. I'm going to read it to you. John 19, 33 through 35. This is not on your page, so if you're interested, John 19, 33 through 35. When they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies to you so that you also may believe. John is speaking of himself, and he's speaking of the water and blood in Jesus, which he saw and testifies to. This is an important theme for John. In 1 John 5, 5 through 6, John writes again, Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. This is an important theme for John. We are understanding that there, is, there are images that we have probably read about or even perused over and had no idea how they were relevant to today. But just like the book of Numbers is relevant, so are the things that it points to. Because it's constantly pointing to <clears throat> the authority of God. Now we're going to talk about rocks and rebukes from Numbers 20. Now, this is, this is the big um, issue at Meribah, or Meribah, where we need, rock, we need water. The people are complaining about, again, something water. And once again, Moses falls on his face. And God tells him exactly what to do. Exactly, he says, take the staff, you and your brother, gather the assembly, speak to the rock to yield its water. Oh, I've never spoken to a rock, nor would I ever think it was natural to speak to a rock. It's supernatural to speak to a rock because it's going to bring you water. And from the community and for the livestock. So God says, I'm... Remember all the other authority I gave you, like passing through the Red Sea? Remember how we've established all of this, uh, how the angel of death passed over you? Well, here's another one. I'm going to give you wa a water from a rock. And Moses did this. He took the staff, just like God said. And then he and his brother, just like God said, gathered the assembly, just like God said. And then he rebuked the people. We must bring you, must we bring you water from the rock? Did God tell him to rebuke the people? Did God give him the power to rebuke the people? Did God give him the authority to rebuke the people? The only person he was supposed to speak to is an inanimate object, the rock. And so he lifted his hand. Oh, that's a high hand right there. And he struck the rock twice, and water gushed out, and the community and livestock drank. And so Moses probably thinks, hey, see, I can do that. I did that. And that is the problem. Because in that experience is a high hand before God that says, you gave me power to make me more powerful. But God says, I give you this power to get my name glory. And so for that, they, he is, both he and Aaron are unable to enter the promised land. Moses sees it, Aaron doesn't. I'm going to give you this really quickly. They're going to reroute around Edom, the definition of Edom is red. This is a theme here. He was um, Jacob's twin Esau. These are the, the relatives of Jacob's twin. He was hairy. That's what his Esau name means. But he also traded his birthright for a red stew. So they started calling him Edom. So now we have 
the people of Israel trying to get to the promised land, which they know where it is, and they have to get passage through an area of Edom, and the Edomites say, forget about it. Your great-grandfather and my great-grandfather had an issue. You're not coming in. So this is the sins of the generation that are cast upon the ones that follow. If we have uh, discord in our families and we haven't resolved it or taken a stance to do something different, or even if we have, the sins of the generations before us may be um, thriving in the world today. We wonder how many things in the world are happening that we wouldn't want to happen that are because of a sin that came long before us. So the Edomites don't yield and the consequences run through the generations. And our last point, goodbye to Aaron. So in... um, the death of Aaron, it says in Deuteronomy 34.1.8, a correction for high-handedness first for Aaron will eventually come to Moses. And, and we see about the, there are more written about why um, Aaron can't get into the promised land. But what happens here is Aaron at this point is actually mourned for 30 days in a very ritualized way. We'll see the same word used for Moses not in numbers that you don't you wouldn't see that again until the next chapter but um he he before he leaves he takes eliezer his son the rightful heir of the priesthood puts his priestly garments on him and stays to die on the mountain i don't know if it's a supernatural death or a natural death but he's stripped of his priesthood but he's passed it down to his son so god can use the next generation to perpetuate his goodness he he tries to but we are such we are such um unworthy vessels sometimes, and we do rebel. So just to wrap this up, as you get into this discussion today about Baal, Balaam and the spearing of the, of the two people who have taken uh, relationships with an unclean people into their tents and have let, have let people come in and change the purity that God intended, you will see that his intention is not to kill, but it's to, to create thriving and to create um, beauty from ashes. So let's pray that we begin to understand some of these hard things that we read. I'll pray now. Heavenly Father, your word is true, and it's right when we understand it and when we don't. And Lord, it gives us pleasure to walk with you because we know you love us like a parent, but it also gives us confusion. Please help us in our confusion, Lord, as we seek your word and and the wisdom that you've given um, our sisters in the room together today. In Jesus' name, amen.